sacrifice of Christ that we accept atones for us and allows us to come into your presence. We bless your name this morning. And we worship you. And we look to you. In Christ's name. good to be here together for worship. Uh, turn with me, if you would, to Galatians chapter 6, and if you want to put a finger or a bookmark also in James chapter 5, we will uh, be there as well. And, and we're actually going to jump around quite a bit this morning, but uh, we'll start in Galatians chapter 6. Uh, and we will now turn as we look there to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for the opportunity to gather this morning. We thank you for uh, just the blessing of the church, that you have not left us alone in the world, that we, um, that we have each other to uh, laugh with, to cry with, uh, to share the joys and difficulties of life together, to bear one another's burdens, and to uh, so fulfill the law of Christ. We thank you that you have um, built in an automatic family to the church for us as you have adopted us into your family and given us one another. Father, we thank you today for your holiness, that you are a God opposed to sin, that there is no wrongdoing that is acceptable to you, that you are offended by all of our failures and weaknesses. And that, Lord, that seems like a strange thing to be grateful for in some level, but, uh, but at the same time, you cannot, you cannot stand injustice. You cannot stand uh, the, the horrible treatment that some undergo. You cannot stand any sin in our lives. And yet you love us, and yet you, uh, you care for us, and you have sent your Son to redeem us from the consequences of our own actions. Father, we confess that we underestimate that holiness at times. Maybe thinking of you uh, like a, a grandfather winking at the indiscretions of a young grandchild. But you are not, uh, you are not like that, Lord. And so we confess that we have underestimated your holiness, and we confess that we overestimate our goodness. And yet your word assures us of pardon. Lord, we thank you that for the reminder in Hebrews 9, 28, where we are told that Christ has been offered to bear our sins, and that because of that we can be reconciled to you and we can be assured that there is forgiveness from all of our underestimations of you. 
Lord, we, uh, we ask that this church would be in your church everywhere, uh, would be committed to uh, gospel-centered preaching and teaching in its ministries, that we would hold the gospel up at the core of all we do, that it would be the constant reminder of what you have done for us, and that our worthiness is not uh, ahead of your forgiveness, but follows behind it, that we respond to the gospel by living worthy of what you have done for us. So, Father, we pray that you would let us live lives that are a worthy response to the forgiveness that you have given us in Christ. Lord, we think of Moment Church this morning, as I know that there are some who are loved here and connected there, and we just think of the ministries that they have, and Lord, continue to think of, of these churches as they consider how to, um, how to navigate the difficulties of uh, the restrictions on gathering and wanting to keep people safe and uh, to be wise in this time. Lord, I pray that the gospel would be clear there and that they would be blessed by you in accordance with that clarity. Lord, we pray for them and us that the gospel might ring forth from us and that those who do not know you might come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as a result of that. Lord, we pray that that would be true not only of our teaching ministries but also of our lives in general, that we would be quick to speak the gospel to others, that we would be quick to build relationships with those who don't know you, that we might share the gospel with them. Lord, I think of uh, Jess and her ministry that we support here at Whitman and the confusing time this is with uh, classes not meeting in person. Lord, I'm, I imagine, though I don't know, that that might threaten her level of support, which I believe was already lacking. Uh, so, Father, we just ask that you would give her wisdom. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would give the churches that support her faithfulness uh, in their support of her. And, and Father, we just pray that we might... Uh, as well have a, an impact, a partnership with her, not just a financial partnership, but that we might care about those students who come here to our town uh, to get educated and that we might uh, be concerned with taking the gospel there. Lord, keep us from the sin of thinking we pay her or others to do the ministry that we ourselves are unwilling to do, but that we would partner with her in the spread of the gospel here in Walla Walla. Lord, we think also of Mike Betcher. We thank you that he was able to get uh, in and get surgery this week and that he is home in his own bed and that even though he is in pain recovering from that surgery that, um, uh, that it is a, a much uh, slighter degree of pain than he was experiencing before. And Father, we just pray for a speedy recovery for him and that he might be able to uh, get back to things as normal and that his level of pain would, uh, would be greatly diminished, Lord. Lord, we thank you for uh, his just constancy in keeping his eyes fixed on you throughout the difficulty of the last week or two as he's been battling all this pain with his back and now this recovery from this surgery. Father, as we turn now to your word, we ask that you would give us soft hearts to obey it. Lord, give us open eyes and ears uh, and, and sharp minds to understand what your word says, just a willingness to live obediently in response. We ask it for your glory and for the good of your church. In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Galatians chapter 6 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, that is any sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And Similarly to that, James chapter 5, verse 16, 
I'll probably back up to verse 13. Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins one, or confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be helped or healed, I'm sorry. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The one another we come to in our series today is another simple uh, command. That is to confess our sins to each other. Um, I think this has been emphasized in recent decades, and maybe sometimes that is done well and sometimes it's not. But we should not be lost at the simplicity of the command in its difficulty to actually do it. It is not easy to bear our souls, our sins, our struggles to one another. Um, As we gathered uh, for these meet the mans, one of the questions that Rust asked consistently is, what do you want people to know about you? And the thing I said over and over was, I want people to know that I'm a sinner and Christ is a great Savior. Because I'm not the hope of Trinity Baptist Church, nor is any human other than Jesus Christ. And I will disappoint. I'm prone to pride. I'm prone to uh, thinking uh, of myself too often. Uh, Maybe sometimes too highly of myself, certainly sometimes too highly of myself, but most definitely too often of myself. I'm prone to defensiveness. Uh, When people uh, offer correction, I'm prone to... uh, to reject that correction, as though I, I'm righteous, as though I, I don't need correction, as though I'm not guilty. I'm frequently, frequently reminded of the words of Charles Spurgeon where he said, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are far worse than he thinks you to be. And that is so true. I'm prone to self-reliance. I'm quick to act before prayer thinking that I am sufficient to do whatever it is that is before me, and I don't need the Lord's help. I love to be thought highly of, and I love the praise of people, maybe much more than I I ought to. I sometimes worry, particularly in the context of relationships, but about the future and about what's going to happen, which honestly is just the sin of distrusting the promises and providence of God that I don't believe that God's going to do what he says he does, and I don't believe he's good in whatever it is he's allowing to happen in my life, and, and so then I, I worry. I'm prone to complaint, which, according to 1 Corinthians, is a grievous sin that uh, we're reminded of in the nation of Israel that we might not be prone to complaint and, and is idolatry. Confessing sin isn't easy. For all of those things, there's a thousand thoughts that go through my head that I would be appalled for anybody to hear or know. And yet Galatians 6 and James chapter 5, it calls us to confess our sins one to another precisely because, and hear this and hear this well, sanctification, that is becoming more and more like Christ, is a community project. It is not an individual pursuit. 
Our, our American individualism does not serve us as a church well because God has designed our sanctification, our becoming more and more like Christ as a community project. And we'll look more at that later. Most of us, thinking of Galatians chapter 6, and you can turn back there now, most of us probably know the fruit of the Spirit. Many of us uh, can recite it, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against such things, we know there is no... Uh, I mean, these are the things we're commanded to. But what about the, the works of the flesh in Galatians 5? Do we have that memorized? Look at verse 16 of chapter 5 in Galatians. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not, de- you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, who among us could possibly say that we do not fall guilty uh, of any one of those things? We certainly are. We need to know them because we need to be on the lookout for them. We are not free, though forgiven. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and have trusted Him for your standing before God, we have been made new in our spirit. But we have not been made new yet in our flesh. And we are not free from the effects of the flesh. And so we need to look out for one another. I recently watched a documentary. It was fascinating, called Free Solo. And it's about this guy who made the first... uh, Solo climb, completely unattached, up El Capitan in Yosemite. I mean, four hours of climbing. He's the first guy to do it. Why is he the first guy to do it? Because it's incredibly foolish to climb that alone. Climbers not only hook to the rock, but they hook to each other. They stay clipped to one another as they climb, and they stay clipped to the rock so that if they fall, they don't fall very far. But unclipped to the rock, unclipped to one another, the danger is tremendous. We are told clearly that we cannot stand, that our our lives are built on sand if, if we are not built on the foundation of the rock of Jesus Christ. We must be clipped to the rock, but we must be clipped to one another as well. Matthew 7, 13 is clear that the path is narrow that leads to eternal life. You you want to see a narrow path? Watch Free Solo. There is points in this climb where this guy is not strapped into anything where he's probably got like three sixteenths of an inch to put hands and feet. It's a narrow path. Accountability partners were trendy maybe 20 years ago. I want to take a moment, if I can, and kind of 
just address that because I don't think that that's what Scripture has in mind. Now, I don't want to say that having an accountability as part, a partner is bad, but I think the way that they were done, particularly 20 years ago and, and maybe even continuing today, I don't think they're as trendy as they were, were, were not always helpful because the idea of having an accountability partner was that you confess your sin, you talk about your sin, you are held accountable for your sin, and I feel like a little bit they were like Gollum from Lord of the Rings obsessing over our sin. Well, if you spend all your time obsessing over your sin, even if you do it with someone else, that's not so helpful. We are to confess our sins to one another, but it is not simply enough to hold each other accountable to not sinning. We're to hold each other accountable to living righteously. It's hard to confess because of our pride. It might be harder to confess because of fear of others. I'm not sure I've ever met a church that didn't say one of the issues that needed addressed in it was gossip. I'm not sure I've ever met a church that didn't say one of the issues that needed addressed was slander. Churches love to gossip for several reasons. Because if I can talk about the bad things that you do, I don't have to talk about the bad things I do. I can make myself feel better by comparing myself to whatever sin it is that you're guilty of. We're prone to slander. We speak ill of others. We're prone to think that others might reject us when we're not perfect. We are certainly prone to pretense, trying to project an image to others that we have it all together. And so there is the possibility that when I bear my soul to you of the wickedness that is in me, that you might reject me. You might tell someone else. You might think ill of me. I cannot promise these things won't happen. But what I want to look at today is why despite all of those things, it is safe to be in the sanctification process communally with others. I can't promise that people won't hurt you. I can't promise that people won't betray you. I can't promise that your sins won't become public. But I can promise you that your sin is always destructive. That I can promise. Romans 6.23 is clear that the wages of sin is death. Back again to James. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to, to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sin should terrify you. Sin should terrify you. If you don't know Jesus, if you're trusting in your own righteousness or goodness today, if, if you yourself are the basis for which you think God will approve of you, you should be terrified of sin because it means that the, the just punishment of God is still upon you. But if you have trusted in Jesus, you should be afraid of sin too. Not because God's going to punish you for your sin, but Hebrews is clear that all legitimate children are disciplined by God when they sin. And we're reminded that all discipline is painful so that it might yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Either way, sin is nothing to be trifled with. 
We tend to categorize it. These are big sins. They're dangerous. These are little sins. They're not so harmful. There is no sin that is not destructive to our souls, to our relationships with God, and to our relationships with each other. Bottom line is, because of the dangerous nature of sin, the deadly nature of it, we must be clipped to the rock and to one another. Again, as I've already said, we see that the command is simple, though it's not always easy because it doesn't feel safe. And so I want to show you today how we can know it's safe to allow others to bear our burdens with us. And the answer to the reason why or how it is uh, is possible for us to know that it's safe is Jesus. And so today I want to look at three ministries of Jesus that provide safety in relationships. Three ministries of Jesus that provide safety in relationships. One of them is past, two of them are present. I, I think we often talk about what Jesus has done, but maybe, sadly, we don't talk enough about what Jesus is doing. And so today we're going to look at one past ministry of Jesus and two present ministries of Jesus. And we need to think more about what he's doing now. His past ministry is important, but so is his present ministry. Uh, number one on your outline there, the first ministry of Jesus is justification justification. And this is to say that Jesus went before. Jesus went before us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Before we pursued him, knew him, thought about him, cared about him, Jesus pursued us. He went before our sins. Romans chapter 3. Turn with me there if you would. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. Most of us probably know verse 23 of Romans chapter 3, but this whole section is important. Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested, that is, the righteousness of God has been shown apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, there's the word we're talking about, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a big word, the word propitious means to make favorable. So he's saying, notice this is really important here, um, whom God, that is God the Father, put forward as a propitiation by his blood. It's important for us to know that God is the initiator there, but that God sent Christ to die on our behalf so that he might be made favorable towards us. This is to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This word justify or justification, it's a legal term. It is simply the declaration of not guilty. That's what it means to be justified. When we justify ourselves, we're trying to explain away our guilt. Or if we've been accused of something and we go to court and we are found not guilty, we have been justified. We've been declared 
not guilty. And so here we're being told that what Jesus did before in dying on the cross, bearing the consequences of our sins, raising again three days later, that that when we trust Jesus, it is righteousness that comes to us by faith, as Paul makes clear here, that we are justified. We are in the courtroom of God declared not guilty. But Paul's concern here was not the same as the modern concern. Most of the time today, we hear the question, how could a loving God punish anyone? That is not Paul's great concern. Paul is not trying to figure out how a loving God could condemn. He's trying to figure out how a righteous and just God could forgive. How can a God who is holy, who is opposed to sin, who is righteous, who is not okay with the wrong things that we do, how can that God forgive anyone? We tend to not like this out of God, but then we change the rules. We've got an election coming up. You might see signs all over the place for the election of a judge whom many of us know. If you could look into his record as a judge and find out that he let every guilty criminal go, would he get your vote? Of course not. But we demand that of God. Oh, we're guilty, we know, Lord, but because you're loving, you must let us go. And how dare you hold anyone accountable? Paul is not trying to figure out how a loving God could condemn. He is trying to figure out how a just God could forgive because both are in his nature. He is both just and forgiving. He is both righteous and gracious. And so what did God do in order to be both righteous and and forgiving, he bore the penalty for our sin himself. And at the cross, we find that the debt of our sin is fully paid. Any punishment that could have been handed down by the judge is met out there. And at the same time, because it is met on somebody else, this is why Jesus had to be sinless, so that he could bear our consequence. It's why he had to be God, so that his payment was of sufficient value to purchase all of us. And then look what Paul says there, verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in. How did he do this? Colossians 2, 13 through 14 says he did it by nailing the record of our debt to the cross. Record expunged. Not sealed. Expunged. We know the difference, right? If you're guilty of a crime and your record is sealed, nobody can look it up. If you're you're guilty of a crime and your record is expunged, it's removed from your record. We might say that in today's world, somebody hit the delete key on the crime. Or somebody pulled the paper out of the file and put it through the paper shredder. God took the record of our guilt and put it, before, put it on the cross, having nailed it with Jesus to the cross. It ceases to exist. And when God or anybody else looks in our record, the record is empty 
not guilty, righteous. Not our righteousness, Christ's righteousness applied to us. For those who believe the payment is made, the record is expunged, guilt is cleared, and righteousness is imparted. This is his past work. You can can freely confess to one another and to God because God, uh, because our record is not guilty. Let me ask you, when you speak to others about somebody else in the church, do you speak about them as though their record is not guilty? As though it is empty of every crime? As though there is no sin held to their account? Or do you speak about others as though they are guilty? No matter how much wrong we have done, if we have trusted Christ, there is no accusation in God's court that can stick. God, but don't you know what so-and-so did to me? And God says, they're not guilty. But God, it was big. They did this to me. Not guilty. At least if they're a believer, not guilty. But God, I can't forgive them for that. Yes, you can. I already have. But it also frees us to confess to others because we come to each other having had the record of our debt expunged. There is no consequence that can come. I mean, there are earthly consequences to our sin, but eternally, the consequences are gone. Jesus went before our sin, made sufficient payment as the sinless, divine Savior, and when we come to God through Jesus in faith of what Christ has done for us, we are declared not guilty. But now, we can see that there are two current ministries that Jesus is doing that provide safety in our relationships, particularly safety in terms of confession. And the second is intercession. Intercession. That is that Jesus goes ahead of us. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25 says this. Consequently, well, I'll back up to verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing to, in office. But he, that is Jesus, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is Jesus' priestly ministry. Jesus holds several of what we call offices. As king, he rules over his people. As prophet, he speaks on behalf of God to people. He tells us what God says, shows us who God is. As priest, he represents people to God. We should never forget that we are desperately in need of a priest. Just not one on earth in churches or tabernacles we are in need of jesus christ our great high priest who always lives to make intercession for us we need a priest and jesus is that priest hebrews shows us how jesus is both prophet really all three prophet priest and king but as prophet john 14 9 reminds us jesus is asked by one of his disciples when will you show us the father he says whoever has seen me 
has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? As prophet, Jesus shows us who God the Father is. And as priest, he represents us to God. 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 and 6. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Justification declares us innocent. It is the past payment that Jesus has made to, to purchase our righteousness and our innocence and our freedom from guilt. Intercession is the current ministry of Jesus where he is constantly applying to our lives what the cross accomplished. Talking to somebody yesterday about the Golden Gate Bridge. The Golden Gate Bridge uh, has a crew. You want to talk about an exercise in futility. It is a paint crew. It takes about one year to paint the Golden Gate Bridge, and they start at one end, and they paint all the way across the Golden Gate Bridge. And when that's done, they go back and they start again. It's just a constant application of paint to the bridge because salt water is corrosive, and if there's not this constant application of paint and protection from the environments and from the weather, that corrosion sets in, rust begins to form, and the integrity of the whole structure begins to fall down. Similarly, the intercessory ministry of Jesus is the constant application of grace to our lives because sin is corrosive, and when it creeps in, it begins to rust out areas of our lives, and unaddressed, the whole structure begins to topple. And so the intercessory work of Jesus is the constant application of grace to our lives. There's a danger here, and why I pointed out in Romans that it was God who set forth Christ as the propitiation for our sins. And the danger is to think of God as angry and hostile and cold and Christ as warm and loving. But these, these passages should never lead us to that idea. It was God who set forth Christ as the propitiation for our sins, to make him favorable towards us. Uh, it's, it's pretty clear in Titus chapter 1, the first opening verses, that it was God who promised a redeemed people to his son. Listen to what Dane Ortland says in his book, Gentle and Lowly. He says, this does not mean that the father is reluctant to embrace us or that the son has a more loving disposition towards us than the father does. The atoning work of the son was something that the father and son delightedly agreed to together in eternity past. The son's intercession does not reflect the coolness of the father, but the sheer warmth of the son. Christ does not intercede because the father's heart is tepid towards us, but because the son's heart is so full towards us, but the Father's own deepest delight is to say yes to the Son's pleading on our behalf. Jesus saves sinners to the uttermost because he always lives to make intercession for them. Why does he need to be an uttermost Savior? Because we are uttermost sinners. Are you tempted to think that it is your sincerity that is the determining factor in your salvation? 
I think there's a great danger in this, right? Many of us have had what I call fire insurance professions, where we profess faith in Christ, and then later we're convicted of some sin, and so we go back and we profess faith in Christ again because we're afraid that the measure of our faith, sincerity of our faith was insufficient. We must sincerely believe, but it is not the sincerity of our faith that is the determining factor in our salvation. It is not the sincerity of our faith, but the faithfulness of our Savior. Notice that the security here for us in Hebrews chapter 7 is not that we were sincere enough, but that He always lives to make intercession for us. I probably as much as any believer believe that once you are saved, you are always saved. But it's not because I can't do something bad enough. Why is it that I'm never going to lose the salvation that God has granted me? Because God never takes a day off from saving me. He is constantly applying grace to our lives. John Calvin said, Christ turns the Father's eyes to his own righteousness, to avert his gaze from our sin. He so reconciles the Father's heart to us that by his intercession, he prepares a way and access for us to the Father's throne. Jesus goes out ahead of our sin, applying grace to our lives constantly. Why are we free and safe to bear each other's burdens and to invite each other into that process, to clip not only to the rock, but to one another? Because Jesus always lives to make intercession for us, and he is an uttermost Savior. But it is not just that he is all, uh, an intercessor for us. He is also an advocate for us. And so the third point is the ministry of Jesus' advocacy, that is, Jesus goes behind us. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. John tells us, very specifically, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's his purpose. I'm writing this book to you so that you'll stop sinning. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Advocacy and intercession are similar. An intercessor goes between. There is two hostile parties. An intercessor stands between the two and brings them together. What a picture of Jesus here. On one side, you have God. On the other side, you have man. How in the world do you bridge that gap? Only by the God-man. That Jesus, as eternally God from eternity past, is able on the one hand to take the Father's hand and on the other hand to take ours as a human, God having become part of his creation, and he is able to stand in the gap as our intercessor, bridging the gap between those two parties. And an advocate is similar, but an advocate is not the same. An advocate doesn't stand between two parties. An advocate joins one party. And so as our intercessor, Jesus stands between us. As an advocate, he stands with us. So there is this constant application of sin to our lives. But what happens when we do sin? 
What happens when, when rust breaks through or, or the salt water begins to be corrosive and a portion of the bridge begins to get rusty? Is it just ignored, painted over the next year that it goes around? No, they repair it. They fix it right then and there. Jesus not only is constantly applying grace ahead of our sin, he is constantly going behind us and cleaning up the mess that we make with our sin. I think Calvin's quote is helpful here. He says, again, he, that is Jesus, so reconciles the Father's heart to us that by his intercession, he prepares a way and access for us to the Father's throne. In his intercession, he prepares a way to the throne. In his advocacy, he goes with us. Why is it that when you go to the Father, if you are a believer, your sin is guaranteed to be forgiven every time? Because you never go alone. It's no wonder that Hebrews tells us we have bold access to the Father's throne. As an advocate, Jesus goes with us. Intercession deals with sin generally. Advocacy deals with sin specifically. Listen here to uh, John Bunyan. Christ as priest goes before, and Christ as an advocate comes after. Christ as priest continually intercedes. Christ as advocate, in case of great transgression, pleads. Christ as priest has need to act always, but Christ as advocate, sometimes only. Christ as priest acts in time of peace. But Christ as advocate, in times of broils, turmoils, and sharp contentions, wherefore Christ as advocate is, as I may call him, a reserve. And his time is then to arise, to stand up, and plead when his own are clothed with some filthy sin of late that they have fallen into. Scripture never says that we'll cease to sin. That's the struggle between the Spirit and the flesh. It does, however, say that Jesus is cleaning up the mess. Faith and repentance are necessary for salvation. Those are two ways of looking at the same thing. Faith, when we encounter it in Scripture, is looking at the side of salvation of where my life is generally heading away from Christ, but I turn towards him, and now I'm turned towards God through Christ. That's what faith is. It is, a, it is a turning to believe in something. But repentance is a turning away from. In order to turn to Christ, I must turn away from my sin. We should never think in, in, of faith and repentance in terms of two different things. This is why it is impossible biblically to separate faith from repentance, because to turn to Christ is inherently to turn away from sin, but it is not the sincerity of our faith that saves us. So what is the evidence of our salvation then? It is our sensitivity to sin. John writes this again, so that we may not sin. John is not writing so that we will be sinless. He is writing so that we will sin less. And when we do sin, and he tells us very clearly that if we say we don't have any sin, we're liars. When we do sin, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, who not only goes ahead of us constantly applying grace, but who goes behind us repairing 
the decay in our lives. How do we slow the decay? How do we slow the effects of sin in our lives? Well, now this is where we come back to where we started. We do so communally. We do so communally. Back to Hebrews. But now chapter 10, verse 19. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Because we have Christ as justifier, intercessor, and advocate, we can come boldly to the throne of grace. We can clip ourselves to the rock. But what is the necessary implication of being clipped to the rock? Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Again, not the sincerity of our faith, but the faithfulness of our Savior that allows us to hold fast the confession of our hope. And here's the result. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The, the necessary implication of clipping ourselves to the rock of Christ is that we are clipped to one another. And, and the necessary implication of being clipped to one another and every day drawing nearer and nearer to the day that Christ will return is that every day provides greater and greater and greater need to be clipped together, not less. In other words, the higher you go on the climb of El Capitan, the more important it is to be hooked together. I'll start that climb and climb 5,000 feet, or five feet. But once I get up 3,000 feet, I want to be clipped to somebody else. And I want to be clipped to the rock. The further we go through redemptive history, the closer we draw near to Christ's return, the more, not less, need we have to be bound together as a church to one another. And I think this implies much more than just showing up on Sundays. Certainly that's in view here. We are not to neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. But there's much more than that. What do you rely on for security? Do you rely on yourself? Do you rely on your own goodness? Do you rely on your own faith? Or do you rely on Jesus? If you're trusting in anything other than Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins today, oh, I would beg you to please run to him. Confess your sinfulness. Repent of that and turn to him and be reconciled to God. Don't go further down the walk of life alone. But if you're a believer here today, if you have confessed, 
Jesus provides the safety for you to be in process communally. But here's the real danger of a sermon like this. The real danger of a sermon like this is to look around and say, are you safe? Is he safe? Is she safe? That's not the question before me today. It's not the question before you today. The question before us today is, am I safe for someone else? If somebody comes to me and trusts me with their sin, with their struggle, and asks me to walk along with them, can they trust me not to use it to think ill of them? Do I see Christ in them as God sees Christ in them? Can they trust me not to tell somebody else? Now, I would say that if that person is going to commit a crime, is committing a crime, or someone else is in danger, tell someone else. But if those things aren't happening, are you a safe place? We should not use the sins of others, whether we catch them in it, as Galatians says, if anyone is caught in any trespass or sin, or whether they confess to us, we should not use those as opportunities for gossip or slander. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. Do we see that our role as loving believers is to cover the sins of others or to expose them? Our job is to cover them. Trinity must be a place of people in progress, not a place of people who appear to be perfect. We cannot do all of this in a large group. It's just not possible. If you're not in a growth group, you ought to be. Or, or come to men's group on Thursday morning. Or, or involved in, in youth or women's ministry. Teenagers, do you value the connection of your small group at youth group? As people who you can be real and honest with. Here's, here's a real tough one. Are you willing in that small group to be the vulnerable party that shows others, sets the example for what this is like? Are your children involved in children's ministry? Yeah, our children's ministry probably isn't going to be small groups where our children are confessing their sins to one another. But what it is, is it sets up a pattern. It sets up a pattern in our children's lives where, where they meet with others and join their parents in worship. Get plugged in. Not just to show up and observe, but to participate in the lives of others. Be willing to be vulnerable, knowing that Jesus Christ has already covered everything. And then be that safe place, knowing that love covers a multitude of sins. I'm going to close us with a verse out of Romans chapter 8, or two verses out of Romans chapter 8, that bring these two ideas together. Where we see this connection between the past work of Jesus and the present work of Jesus. Where we see the connection between his past justification and and our present sanctification, that is our present being saved. Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34. I'm going to go back to 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, 
but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors, through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, Father, Thank you for such love that is not cold or indifferent towards us, but that that would not withhold even your only son from us. Lord, why do we doubt that you will not, or why do we doubt that you will give us all good things? If you have not spared your only son, there is no good thing that you will withhold from us. We confess that we are uttermost sinners and we are thankful that Jesus Christ is our uttermost Savior. Lord, we confess that nothing will separate us from your love. And Lord, because Jesus Christ and his cross, his death, his resurrection is sufficient to cover every one of our sins, may we be the type of Christians who love in such a way as to cover a multitude of sins, to keep each other from the decaying and and destructive nature of sin. But that we would realize it is not us who, who applies grace. It is our great Savior who always goes out ahead of us, who has gone before us, who comes behind us, and who has provided a way for it to be safe, not only for us to boldly approach your throne, but to boldly be in relationships with each other. Lord, may we step into those relationships with great gusto, but also with great grace. May it be for the good of your church and the spread of the gospel when we ask it in Jesus' name.